Okay. Yeah, there's still lots of pizza left. I have to apologize for having pizza in the first place. You know, we were going to have, we always wanted to avoid pizza for the Bible study because, you know, it's not as exciting as some other food we could get. But Angelo's called at the last minute and said they just didn't have enough people to make spaghetti and, and all that stuff. So anyway, pizza was last minute. But there's lots more. So if you want some extra. Okay, well, we're going to spend the whole time today um, talking about the events of Mount Sinai. So let's pray as we begin. <clears throat> Dear Father, please be with us just now. As always, we're seeking to come closer to understand you. And there are some confusing things that happen here at Mount Sinai. Help us to uh, not misunderstand. Please help us to open our eyes and see you as you are. Amen. <clears throat> well, there are basically three things I want to talk about today. The first is the way God came on Mount Sinai. Maybe some of you haven't read the story recently, but um, it's quite, um, oh, I don't know, intimidating the way God comes down on Mount Sinai. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll just talk about the Ten Commandments a little bit. We'll talk about this more when we get to Deuteronomy and just the law in general. And then finally, we'll talk about the people. You remember they rebelled. They're dancing around a golden calf. And the way God came to Moses um, in anger. I'm going to talk about that. But first, let's read the description here in Exodus uh, 19. The Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Go to the people and tell them to spend today and tomorrow purifying themselves for worship. They must wash their clothes and be ready for the day after tomorrow. On that day, I will come down on Mount Sinai where all the people can see me. Mark a boundary around the mountain that the people must not cross and tell them not to go up the mountain or even get near it. If any of you set foot on it, you are to be put to death. You must either be stoned or shot with arrows without anyone touching you. This applies to both people and animals. Okay, how do you keep your pet dog from running up there to the mountain? They must be put to death. But when the trumpet is blown, then the people are to go up to the mountain. Then Moses came down the mountain and told the people to get ready for worship. So they washed their clothes and Moses told them, be ready by the day after tomorrow and don't have sexual intercourse in the meantime. This is very serious. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. A thick cloud appeared on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast was heard. All the people in the camp trembled with fear. Moses led them out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Can you just imagine this? People trembling in fear behind Moses coming up to meet God at the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and all the people trembled violently. Wouldn't you love to have this on a, a movie, a real live, actually what happened? The sound of the trumpet became louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And so um, a little more here on the description. Moses climbed the mountain. Then the Lord told Moses, go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near to the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. Hey, what does that mean? Break out and destroy them. But Lord, Moses protested, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me, mark off a boundary all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord 
or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. Okay, so who knows here how it looked, but it was something rather spectacular here uh, on Mount Sinai. And my question was, remember we read uh, last time, very clearly Paul says that the God who went with them through the wilderness was Christ himself. And Jesus said, I am the I am that talked to Moses at the burning bush. So who came down on Mount Sinai? Um, God the Son. And so why didn't he come down, I mean, you know, uh, in human form and say, blessed are the meek? Why come down with such a spectacular show? What do you think? Any, uh, any thoughts on why he chose to, to do it this way? I mean, God had come in human form, remember, and uh, ate a calf with Abraham. Um, he came down and wrestled with Jacob in the dirt. Why does he come down now in all his might and power and brightness and glory and smoke and thunder? Well, I think just back in the what we just read, which started out this way, the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Uh, was there an authority problem? at all with these people wandering through the desert? Did they ever question Moses and his authority? Uh, were they always, uh, yes, Moses, we'll do exactly what you say. We trust you, Moses. I mean, this whole wilderness wandering was a one rebellion after another. And so God here, I mean, how do you reach a people that only respond to power? How do you reach a people that only respond to this kind of show of force? Well, apparently God had to Come with a show of force. And, uh, I mean, did he overdo it, would you say? Too strong? We just read on. What happened? Forty days later, what were they doing? Dancing drunk around a golden calf. They were so terrified of God that they said, we're going to obey for at least um, two months. No, they're right away now claiming, this is our God who led us out of Egypt. Okay, wouldn't you think if God came to us in that way, man, we might... Uh, be a little better in our church attendance and things like that for a while, okay? But here these people are dancing around a golden calf 40 days later. Well, let's pick up the story. When the people heard the thunder and the trumpet blast and saw the lightning and the smoking mountain, they trembled with fear and stood a long way off. They said to Moses, if you speak to us, we will listen, but we are afraid that if God speaks to us, we will die. And Moses replied, don't be afraid. God has only come to test you and to make you keep on obeying him. Didn't work for too long so that you will not sin. But notice here, I mean, there, there would appear to be one person in this entire company who really knows God. And what does that one person say? There is no reason to be afraid. One person who knew God said, don't be afraid. The whole host of the rest of the people who didn't know God so well, we're afraid. And we'll notice this contrast Again and again, in story after story in the Bible, I like this verse in Psalms uh, 68. As wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. They are happy and shout for joy. So there seem, God seems to have an incredible splitting effect on people depending on where they are. And people completely out of harmony with God are extremely uncomfortable to the point of death in his presence. Some people, uh, totally the opposite experience. 
Now, let's read a little bit. The, you know, Deuteronomy, uh, we have to fill out a lot of the details. The book of Deuteronomy gives uh, many details of the stories in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So here's the account of Deuteronomy. When the whole mountain was on fire and you heard the voice from the darkness, your leaders and the chiefs of your tribes came to me and said, the Lord our God showed us his greatness and his glory when we heard him speak from the fire. Today we have seen that it is possible for people to continue to live even though God has spoken to them. But why should we risk death again? That terrible fire will destroy us. We are sure to die if we hear the Lord our God speak again. Has any human being ever lived after hearing the living God speak from a fire? Go back, Moses, and listen to everything that the Lord our God says. Then return and tell us what he said to you. We will listen and obey. Kind of like the people are pushing Moses forward. Yeah, you go, you go, Moses. Go tell us what God said and uh, we'll listen to you. When the Lord heard this, he said to me, I have heard what these people said and they are right. If only they would always feel this way. If only they would always honor me and obey all my commands so that everything would go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and tell them to return to their tents. But you, Moses, stay here with me and I will give you all my laws and commands. Teach them to the people so that they will obey them in the land that I am giving them. Giving them. Okay, so the people initially responded at least in saying, okay, Moses, uh, we're not, we don't really want to go. Why don't you go? And then we'll listen to you. And God said, okay, that's a start. But now listen to these words very carefully and try to think of a Latin word that might describe what we have just been talking about. There on the mountain, the Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire. I stood between you and the Lord at that time to tell you what he said because you were afraid. Notice that's why Moses went. The people were afraid. You were afraid of the fire and would not go up to the mountain. So what does this mean? I stood between you and the Lord. Let's read it in some other versions. I stood as an intermediary between you and the Lord. Or I was the mediator and stood between the Lord and you at that time. What does that sound like? Yeah. Moses is the intercessor, right? He is standing between the people and God. He is the intercessor in this case. And uh, this begins um, going through many of these topics just in a nutshell. But the Bible, as we approach a topic like this, we want to use everything, every description um, about intercession. And this here is our first description, a uh, real good description of intercession in the Bible. All right, so what is intercession? Well, let me ask this question. Did someone need to intercede between Moses and God? Did Moses need an intercessor? Well, we have these very strong words. God claiming, he sees me face to face and everything I say to him is perfectly clear. And in Exodus, the Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as someone speaks with a friend. Does it sound like Moses needs an intercessor? Face to face. Well, we do need an intercessor. So what, what does this mean? Um, well, let me ask this. Did someone need to intercede between Jesus and the people that he interacted with during his ministry? Who is Jesus? God in human form. Directly encountering the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. Remember, he was accused of hanging out with the riffraff, the low life of society, uh, the lepers, accused of being a drunk because of the company that he associated himself with. 
And this is God not needing someone between him and the people. All right, so Moses apparently didn't need an intercessor. No need for an intercessor between God and human form and uh, his sinful creatures. So I guess the question would, uh, do we need an intercessor between us and the Father? Okay, most of you nodding your heads yes, and certainly the Bible describes a need for intercession. But the question is, what does that really mean? It is often described as intercession is the process of someone shielding us from the wrath of another member of the Godhead. Is that what intercession really means? For example, Jesus, God in human form, dying on the cross and saying, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Now, do you imagine that the Father, when he heard those words, said, "Um, boy, you're forgiving, Jesus. I'm not quite that forgiving. Do we believe that the Father and the Son are completely in harmony in thought, in motive, in action, in character? And of course, these are the highlight words of the Bible. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He, Jesus, reflects the brightness of God's glory. Jesus wasn't bright. This is a character brightness and is the exact likeness of God's own being. There is no split between two members of the Godhead. They are the same. So why then do we need an intercessor? Well, let's go through a few verses on intercession. In Hebrews 7, that is why he is always, Jesus, able to save those who come to God through him. Notice what happens. How do we come to God? It's through Jesus Christ. How in the world would we know to trust God and to know God were it not for the demonstration of God in human form? This is how we come to God. He can do this because he always lives and intercedes for them. Some versions say plead. He intercedes. But I would propose that the intercession entirely works In this way, God is coming close to us. He is drawing us to him. The purpose of intercession and the reason Jesus came is to facilitate this union, this at-one-ment. Not as a means of intercession shielding us from an angry member of the Godhead. Let's give a little more evidence in Romans. At the same time, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know how to pray for what we need, but the Spirit... Holy Spirit intercedes along with our groans that cannot be expressed in words. Holy Spirit is doing the same thing that Jesus did, interceding, bringing us to God, not shielding us from God. And now we're maybe able to understand a verse like this. I am writing this to you, my dear children, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have someone who pleads, who intercedes with the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Notice, who needs an intercessor? One out of harmony with God. Okay, and we're all out of harmony with God in in some degree. But it's, remember, sin is rebellion, distrust, separation from God. We need someone to bring us to God. And that is the purpose of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll read more expanded this verse in Romans in a different version. In view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, this is the Father, who can be against us? Certainly not God, who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him for us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. The son did not come to create love in the heart of the Father for you and I. He gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? 
God himself declares them not guilty. Who then will condemn them? And this is almost kind of humorous then. Who will condemn us? Hmm. Well, not Christ Jesus. I mean, why even mention Jesus? But uh, not Christ Jesus who died or rather who was raised to life and is at the right side of the God of God pleading, the other version I had, interceding with him for us. Okay, and now we understand it's the son, his intercession is to bring us together at one moment. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love. This is the Father. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present, nor the future, neither the world above, nor the world below. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, the Father, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is intercession in a nutshell. The love of the Father is ex totally exposed, revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Now, here we come to a pinnacle, high moment of truth. I mean, this verse that I'm about to read, or passage, is spectacular. I mean, if there is a high point in the Bible, this is it for me. Jesus, right before he dies, upper room, got to get out a last message here to his disciple, and, well, let's just read it. <laughs> I have told you these things in parables. How much of the Bible is in veiled speech? Parables. And the Amplified, here are some other options. Veiled language, isn't a lot of the Bible in veiled language? Allegories, dark sayings. The hour is now coming when I shall no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I shall tell you about the Father in plain words and openly, without reserve. Now, wouldn't this description that we're about to read supersede any other description about the Father. If we really want to know about the Father, here we have God in human form just telling us there are lots of dark sayings, lots of parables, lots of difficult things. What I'm about to tell you about the Father will be in plain words. And uh, just other versions of this before we get to the meat of it in the God's Word version. I have used examples to illustrate these things. The time is coming when I won't use examples to speak to you. Rather, I'll speak to you about the Father in plain words. And in the message, I've used figures of speech in telling you these things. Soon I'll drop the figures and I'll tell you about the Father in plain language. Okay, so are you ready? I'll, now we'll do the good news version. I've been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and tell you plainly about the Father. When that time comes, listen carefully, you will make your request to him in my own name, for I need us to plead, to intercede, to the Father for you. And this could be perceived as a threat. We don't have an intercessor. Jesus is not going to plead. He's not going to intercede with us. But notice, why? For the Father himself loves you. And the implication here is really that we have not fully understood, fully believed that the Father himself loves us. But a time is coming, apparently, when the words of Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, when this will be fully internalized by a people and uh, that really intercession, according to this description right here, intercession serves its purpose by no longer being necessary. And when we have fully come to God and we see he's just like Jesus, God is love itself, there's no reason to be afraid of God, we really believe the Father himself loves you that is the end of intercession. I know many of you here uh, from a certain background, maybe similar to mine, have heard, well, we will live without an intercessor. 
and that can be scary. But if we understand the purpose of intercession, which is just to bring us to God face to face, just like Moses, uh, that's not a threat. That's good news. And if we read the rest of the passage, the disciples say, now you're speaking plainly. Jesus just said, the time will come and you'll hear it plainly. And the disciples seem to uh, get the message. And Goodspeed, I mean, no greater scholar of the New Testament than Goodspeed translated this. And I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. And notice, that's why now we can have these kinds of verses. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace. We can only come boldly into God's presence if we really 100% believe he's just like Jesus. I mean, if the Father in human form were next door uh, and you had to walk in there, I mean, would you rather it were the Son? Um, You know, we often create a mental image that there's one member to be afraid of, there's another member who's more sympathetic. And uh, that is, I believe, not the case. Well, let's read on here and what else happened at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments. We'll talk more about the law as we get into uh, Deuteronomy. But I want to talk a little bit about these. You're familiar, of course, with the Ten Commandments. Um, The first four have to do with love for God. The last six, well, we say love for neighbor. But what do you think about this? Um, Do you think this was necessary in heaven prior to sin? Did God sit the angels down and say, now please stop the stealing, stop murdering, stop committing adultery? Um, Isn't this kind of a sad state of affairs, actually? Um, My kids are here today because, you know, school was canceled because of the fires. But uh, imagine how sad it would be if I had to tell them at breakfast, uh, please don't steal today. Uh, Please, let's not murder any of your playmates on the playground. Or uh, for those of you who are married, if you had to say to your spouse, um, for a day, please don't commit adultery. I mean, wouldn't that be... This is kind of sad, actually, that God had to sit a people down and give them this list. And wouldn't this list say that all of these things were going on? Which of the Ten Commandments would you say is the hardest to keep? Which one are you pointing to? Yeah, the last one. How come? Do not desire. Don't even want to do anything wrong. And isn't that what Jesus, that's how he explained them all, right? Yeah, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Don't even hate someone. You've heard it said, don't, uh, uh, oops, I mixed that around. (laughs) But don't even look at a woman in the wrong way. Don't commit adultery. Don't even hate someone. Don't steal. Don't even want to steal. So ultimately, having the law written on the heart is you don't even want to do any of these uh, bad things. Do not desire. So what's the purpose of the law? We can read, I mean, I don't know how many of you have read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy uh, recently, uh, but it can, if seen in a certain way, be somewhat of a turnoff. You know, all these lists and rules. Uh, Why does God have to be so specific? Well, listen to the description. What is the purpose of the law? We know that the law is good if it is used as it should be used. How should it be used? It must be remembered, of course, that laws are made not for good people but for lawbreakers and criminals, for the godless and sinful, for those who are not religious or spiritual, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the immoral, for sexual perverts, for kidnappers, for those who lie and give false testimony or who do anything else contrary to sound doctrine. Does this fit the description of the people sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai? 
They needed these rules. And we'll, we'll read this passage in Galatians through in more detail later. It's, it's an incredible passage. But Paul says, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added. Added because we needed it in order to show what wrongdoing is. And uh, we'll talk more when we get into the writings of Paul. But the way Paul describes the law, it is kind of like uh, an MRI scan. We're not aware. Maybe we're just full of cancer. And uh, we're kind of uh, bebopping along. Everything is fine. You get an MRI. Oh, my goodness. Full of cancer. And when you see that what the law asks is don't even desire to hate, to steal, to do all of these things. When we see that, all of a sudden, you know, oh, my goodness. And you see yourself and you see the law, which is ultimately to love. And there's this incredible uh, disharmony. Now, we'll talk about the remedy later, but the remedy, of course, is not then to get a knife and try to cut the cancer out yourself, right? We have a heavenly physician who is fully capable of healing the damage done, but let's read on this passage in Galatians. The law was added, again, because we needed it when we were such rebels, until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith, trust to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. And if you have children, you really understand this. I mean, how many little rules do you have to give to kids? Um, Don't run with a pencil in your hand. Uh, Please don't play in the cat litter box. All of these things, which are given, not because that's like a foundational thing, you want them to remember their whole life, but for a time, for a purpose. It's to protect them until they could really come to love and trust you and do what is right for the right reasons. Now, this verse, I think, helps explain a lot of the difficulties we might have in these first five books of the Bible. In Ezekiel, God describes it this way. I did this because they had rejected my commands, broken my laws, profaned the Sabbath, and worshipped the same idols their ancestors had served. Then I gave them laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. Isn't that amazing? God said, I gave them laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. Well, again, the example, is it a a good law? Don't play in the cat litter box. Does it bring life? Um, Boy, that's, um, you know, you don't want to waste your time giving those kinds of rules, but they're necessary at certain times of spiritual immaturity. Let's look through some of those laws maybe that don't bring life. How about these? Whoever hits his father or his mother is to be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother is to be put to death. Wow. Put to death any woman who practices magic. Put to death anyone who has sexual relations with an animal. Condemn to death anyone who offers sacrifices to any god except me, the Lord. Do not have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives. Do not disgrace your father by having intercourse with your mother. You must not disgrace your own mother. No man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal. That perversion makes you ritually unclean. Do you think God would have had to say this if it were not going on? I mean, is this not very uh, depressing But look, God, I mean, how low is God willing to go to give these kinds of rules? These are not good rules. These don't bring life, okay? But they're apparently necessary to at least start there, all right? And then let's let's work up to something that is more ideal. Um, My kids are here, so I'm not even going to read Leviticus 15, but you can read that later as a whole bunch of other interesting little rules. Now, how about this? You know, we read this and we think, my goodness, what in the world? Do not cook a young sheep or goat in its mother's milk. Um, my wife and I read through these uh, books of Moses some time ago. We made a check mark every time this was listed over and over and over and over. 
Have any of you been tempted to cook a sheep or a goat in its mother's milk? Um, doesn't seem to make any sense. But what's the meaning here? This was done in the fertility cults in that day. Okay? And so, hey, God's saying, don't do that. Remember, the people were always tempted to go off into these other religions. So God has to make a, this fence. Don't go over and do those kinds of things. Here's a description of the priests. Weave the tunic of fine linen. Make the turban of fine linen. The sash will be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes, and hats for Aaron's sons to express glory and beauty. Dress your brother Aaron and his sons in them. Anoint, ordain, and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Make linen underwear to cover their nakedness from waist to thigh. And we might wonder, why is God being involved in the description of underwear? Um, well, let's read it um, in a different place. A uh, different verse. If you use stones to make my altar, don't use dressed stones. If you use a chisel on the stones, you'll profane the altar. Don't use steps to climb my altar because that will expose your nakedness. And we need to see all of these commands in the context of the very perverse pagan fertility cults that involve temple prostitutes, great cruelty, child sacrifice, and... Um, well, what do you think the priests in the pagan cults, do you think they looked uh, very pure and were covered up um, in an appropriate manner? Um, I mean, I think this is why God has to even say, look, this has to be a very pure service, simple, totally different than what is going on in the entire rest of the world. And don't use a chisel and all of this because let's not make the temple an idol that we worship. Let's keep it simple. And, uh, I mean, would you be tempted to think that uh, this individual is involved in some sort of uh, sexual fertility cult with temple prostitutes as compared to what we know is going on at this time? So God has to make a split from what is going on in the world. And that's why we have all these kind of funny um, things that are listed in the Bible. It has to be understood in the context of that time. All right, so coming back to the Ten Commandments a little bit and... What's the ideal? We have all these rules. What's the ideal? Let's turn to Jesus, who said, Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we might wonder, how in the world did Jesus get that out of the Old Testament? Well, it's right there. Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Love the Lord with all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Leviticus 19, do not mistreat foreigners who are living in your land. Treat them as you would an Israelite and love them as you love yourselves. So he read the Old Testament and he saw this is what it all points toward. And notice in Exodus 23, if you happen to see your enemy's cow or donkey running loose, take it back to him. If his donkey has fallen under its load, help him. Get the donkey to its feet again. Don't just walk off. Do you think this is different than the other gods of that day? Do you think the other gods of that day said, do good things for your enemies? Do you think God stood out as very different and distinct from all the other false gods? If you lend money to any of my people who are poor, do not act like a money lender and require him to pay interest. 
Don't pass on malicious gossip. This is Exodus 23. Don't link up with a wicked person and give corrupt testimony. Don't go along with the crowd in doing evil. And don't fudge your testimony. I know it's the Message Bible, but read in another version and it's, it's uh, the same message. Don't fudge your testimony in a case just to please the crowd. And just because someone is poor, don't show favoritism in a dispute. Does God distinguish himself from the pagan, cruel gods of that time? I mean, this is night and day different. Do not mistreat a foreigner. You know how it feels to be a foreigner because you were foreigners in Egypt. I mean, even meeting these people, the ideal is always there. Okay, we just have to look for it a little harder in such a black, dark setting of rebellion. Of course, this is what it all comes down to, though. Paul in Romans said, Be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in the one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. But of course, if you're so far away, I mean, God couldn't just come to Mount Sinai and say, look, I just want you guys to love each other. That would not have worked. He needed to be very specific. And then as a last verse on this, Jesus... I mean, we sometimes say we're free of the law. We're free of the law, but no, we're not. And now I give you a new commandment. One law, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. That's the mark of a Christian. That is our one law as Christians. And all commandments then, many commandments for a specific time, whether at the foot of Mount Sinai or, you know, for kids, all of these little rules we give, Ten Commandments, which ultimately point towards love for God and love for man, and ultimately the law of love written on the heart. That's all God wants, okay? It's just very sad that he had to give so many of these uh, horrible details at a certain time. And if you really love, you're keeping the law. You're not focused on the law, but to have the law of love written on the heart you're not breaking any of these things down here. Okay, the last little story I wanted to bring up um, is the story of what happened. Moses is up. He's getting the Ten Commandments. You've probably seen the movie where he comes down and throws the Ten Commandments down. Um, but what I want to talk about is the way God came to Moses. Okay, because this, this is a difficult passage, but I want to see what you think about this. The Lord said to Moses, hurry and go back down because your people whom you led out of Egypt have sinned and rejected me. They've already left the way that I commanded them to follow. They have made a bull calf out of melted gold and have worshipped it and offered sacrifices to it. They are saying that this is their God who led them out of Egypt. I know how stubborn these people are. Now don't try to stop me. I am angry with them and I am going to destroy them. Then I will make you and your descendants into a great nation. Now, if God came to you, you're leading a bunch of rebellious people. And uh, if you just read what Moses wrote, you can tell these people were a headache to Moses uh, frequently. And God said, all right, I'm just going to wipe them out. And Moses, I'm going to make of you and your descendants a great nation. I mean, you wouldn't argue with God, right? Hmm. Great opportunity here. Start your own country. Moses, be the descendant of all these people. Um, and you know, there were about 600,000 men, not counting women and children. So is, is God just on the verge 
of eliminating, what, one and a half, two million people? Well, notice, 40 days earlier, God said this, the whole earth is mine, but you will be my chosen people, a people dedicated to me alone, and you will serve me as priests. Tender words for his people, 40 days before they rebelled. And some would use this as evidence that God has a rather limited knowledge of the future. Uh, because, you know, he came to Moses. We know the story. He changed his mind. Um, did, did God not have a very good idea of how Moses would respond? Um, why would God come in this way? Does a creature need to step in and talk the creator down from his anger? Well, let's read the story. Notice the emphasis, actually coming back to this, where God said, hurry and go back down because your people, are they Moses' people, who you led out of Egypt have sinned and rejected me. Don't try to stop me. And he says, then I will make of you and your descendants into a great nation. Are these Moses' people? Is this kind of like uh, two parents when a child is acting badly? Well, it's your son. Um, but notice, they're your people, Moses, who you led out of Egypt. Is that true? Well, notice how Moses responds. But Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why should you be so angry with your people? They're not my people who you rescued from Egypt with great might and power. Why should the Egyptians be able to say that you led your people out of Egypt, planning to kill them in the mountains and destroy them completely? Stop being angry, change your mind, and do not bring this disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did God need to be reminded? Remember the solemn promise you made to them to give them as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and to give their descendants all that land you promised would be their possession forever. And so the Lord changed his mind and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. There are many times in the Old Testament where God is said to have changed his mind. What does this really mean? Did God, one moment, he's just on the verge, but then Moses talked him down a little bit, he changed his mind. Well, I think we have to, the way I understand this is, remember we talked about God being an iconoclast. He is shattering the false beliefs about who God is. And he does this through his friends. Well, notice, it's always his friends, Abraham, Moses, Job, the Canaanite woman, who was a woman of great faith. And so here, I think God is doing something quite remarkable, which eventually led to this high point of the Old Testament, where Moses said, please forgive their sins, but if you won't, then remove my name from the book in which you have written the names of your people. This is the absolute ideal. Notice, what has Moses just demonstrated here? He has demonstrated that his love for the people is greater than his own self-interest. And God, who certainly read the heart, knew the motives, knew the character of Moses, how can he reveal this? I mean, the, this whole story would have been very bleak, very depressing. And I think God has to say, look, I've got to show something here. I've got to reveal the one person who's my friend, the one person who speaks face to face with me. I've got to reveal what's inside. And so God comes in this way and Moses responds, look, strike my names from the, name from the book if you're going to do that. And I think God at that point can turn to us, can turn to the angels in heaven when this happened, and said, look, did you just see what my friend Moses just did? That's it. That's the pinnacle. That's what I want. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life. And Moses demonstrated this. Okay, so I think God is here revealing something. Certainly he knew how Moses would respond, but he has to reveal that to us. And so there are very few times in the Bible 
Paul revealed this. Stephen, of course, Jesus dying on the cross. Father, forgive them. This great love for others, greater than self, um, it's the pinnacle of truth. And I think God in this story wanted to teach that. So that's why he came to Moses in the way he did. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we are in admiration of you that you would stoop to reach these people where they were and so far away from you, but yet you gave them rules, laws, everything possible, everything that you could to reach them. And we ask that you would reach us with what we need to see you clearly, to come closer to you, to really believe that the Father himself loves us. Amen.